Um, well, I'm excited this morning um, to, uh, to, to be preaching. I have in the past preached fairly sporadically, you know, every, every three, four months or so. Uh, and that lends its, itself pretty much just to, to topical sermons. Um, nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but I've, I've always would, would really like to preach kind of expositionally through a book of the Bible. Uh, a, a few months ago, um, Mickey asked me if I would be willing to kind of preach a little more regularly uh, every five weeks or so. And, and so I'm excited because that gives me an opportunity um, to, to preach expositionally. Um, hopefully five weeks is, is a short enough time to kind of still vaguely remember uh, the, the sermon before that. Um, I was planning on, on preaching this, this first sermon in this series next week. Uh, but, you know, Mickey is, is not feeling great, running a fever, antibiotics, all that good kind of stuff. And so uh, we, we were planning on sharing about Ireland this morning, like I said earlier. Uh, and, and Mickey called me at about 10 a.m. yesterday, and he said, hey, can you, uh, is, is your sermon ready for next week? And I said, no, it's not. Uh, he said, well, I, I might need you to, to preach tomorrow. So um, fortunately, the good thing about expositional preaching is I already knew where, where I was going, right? Uh, there's, there's no question. Um, and, and so it works out really well that today is also Corporate Prayer Sunday. And so we uh, would, would normally cut off uh, the, the sermon just a little bit to have time for that. And so we might be a little short. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, ex- I'm actually excited for the opportunity to preach on short notice. I've somehow made it 10 years in, in vocational ministry and never had to do it. Because uh, when you preach on short notice, you know, you should always ask for the Lord's help in preaching but short notice, there's like an extra measure of that needed. Um, in fact, I was, I was here at the church working on, on my sermon yesterday, and my wife texted me and said, Bexley prayed, or my five-year-old uh, before lunch said, please be with daddy, help him to say something good during his sermon. And I said, I said amen, sister, that's all we can, that's all we can ask for. Um, but we know that when the word of God is proclaimed, there is always something good. It's not on the preacher, it's on the, it's on the word. Uh, so this morning, if you turn to the book of Colossians, book of Colossians, we'll be working, um, working through that. Uh, th- this morning is really going to be just um, an, an introductory sermon to, to the book. If I can even find it, I would lose Bible drill. <clears throat> So, so the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians, really, is a letter um, written by Paul during his imprisonment in Rome, about AD 62. Um, and as with most of Paul's letters, if you've read and, and paid attention, the first half is, is doctrinal. Uh, the second half is the outplaying of that doctrine. Okay, if this is what we believe, uh, here is how to apply that. It's a, the same kind of phrase that the Puritans used when they, would, when they would talk about doctrine. They would talk about the doctrine, and then they would say, how do we use this doctrine? Because um, orthodoxy without orthopraxy uh, does, does no good. Doctrine without practice does no good. Um, and so you can see the transition in Colossians in, in chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So that's kind of the transition in Colossians. These, these first couple of chapters, um, Paul is primarily addressing 
a heresy. And then in 3.1, he says, okay, if then you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. So with all the doctrinal instruction before, here's how that plays out in life. Now, in this doctrinal half, when Paul is addressing a heresy, we ask the question, what heresy? Um, And we really don't know. It's not named specifically. Uh, Scholars kind of disagree and debate on what exactly the nature of, of this heresy and these false teachings were. But there's a couple of places that we can see um, evidence, at least, even if it's not named, at least kind of some, um, uh, some characteristics of this false teaching that was facing the church at, at Colossae. Um, so, so chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So whatever this heresy was, it was some kind of philosophy, an empty deceit, human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Some would say uh, that this would have been, um, you know, like what, uh, what Paul addresses in Galatians, um, Judaizers telling people that they have to uh, basically become Jews, follow Jewish practices to be Christians. Some people believe it's just pure paganism that he's addressing. We can also see in verse 16 through 19, Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And then he says, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And he, and he goes on. Um, so whatever, whatever this, these false teachings were, you can see in those couple of verses um, the, the, the key point is that these false teachings, they took the focus off of Christ and they put it on something else other than the Savior. So hence, Colossians is a Christ-exalting epistle. It's a Christ-exalting letter. If you've ever read Colossians, then you know um, in, in Colossians um, chapter 1, uh, this, this great uh, Christ hymn of the preeminence of Christ. Um, and so we're going to look at just the opening section of this letter this morning and really kind of lays, lays the groundwork for the rest of the book uh, because it makes the point that, that Christ is the root of the faith. Um, so, so stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word as we read Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read starting in, in verse 1, obviously, um, through verse 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, 
it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you've not left us to guess about what you want from us, um, but God, that you've given it to us. And we thank you for Paul, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote this letter to the church at Colossae um, some 2,000 years ago. God, and we thank you that it is still relevant to us today because your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, be with me this morning uh, as I present this text. God, I, hope, I, I pray that you would um, just open our hearts, our minds, our ears uh, to what you have to say to us through your word. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So the first point, really, that we see in this passage is that our identity is in Christ. So verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Paul identifies uh, himself in this introduction as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And if you look through Paul's letters, uh, the Pauline epistles, you'll see that that's really the primary way that he introduces himself in his letters is as an apostle of Christ. He also uh, will say a servant or a slave of Christ. Um, and, and at least one letter, as I flip through, uh, introduces himself as a prisoner of Christ. But here he introduces himself as an apostle of Christ. And it's significant in the book of Colossians because unlike some of his other letters that were written to churches that he had known, that he had seen face to face, he had never met the church at Colossae face to face. Rather, his his correspondence has come through uh, this man mentioned in verse 7, Epaphras. And and so, um, and you see it elsewhere in the letter too. And so Paul has never met these, these brothers and sisters face-to-face. And what scholars believe happened is that when Paul was in Ephesus for his three years of ministry, they believe that Epaphras traveled to Ephesus from Colossae. He heard Paul proclaiming the gospel. He repented of his sin. He believed in the gospel, was regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, and he returned to Colossae, began preaching the gospel in Colossae, and established a church there as people came to faith. So Epaphras had then become the go-between for Paul and the Colossian church. And we see in verse 7, Paul writes that Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Um, So maybe much much like myself and the elders were uh, ministering to the church in Nina on your behalf. So, So Epaphras was ministering to Paul on behalf of the Colossian church. So now with this letter, Paul opens up with an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he identifies himself to the Colossians who have not met him um, as one who has been commissioned by the will of God to be God's messenger. I am an apostle. So what Paul writes in this letter is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think as a side note, it's worth mentioning that Paul is an apostle. The original 12 were an apostle. Apostle Barnabas, James, named as apostles. Uh, one thing they all had in common um, was a, a 
uh, a face-to-face interaction with the risen Lord Jesus. Um, so if anybody in the modern day um, claims to be an apostle, I, I uh, implore you to stop listening to whatever is spilling out of their mouth immediately um, because they are, they, are, they are lying. There are no modern-day apostles. Um, that's, a, that's a side note soapbox that we could jump on if we wanted to. So whatever, whatever this heresy that the Colossians were facing is, they can be assured that what Paul is writing is as an apostle of Christ, um, as a messenger of God. It's like when, you're, when your child uh, does something that they're not supposed to do and they say, well, so-and-so said I could do it, right? Like, well, but so-and-so is not your parent, so I don't, I don't care what so-and-so said. You're going to do what I say. Or better yet, when um, you get in a, I, I hate to say debate, uh, but a debate over the truthfulness of some statement, and they say, well, so-and-so said this is true, right? And you're like, well, so-and-so is five. So uh, I don't, trust me as your parent when I, when I tell you that, that so-and-so was mistaken, um, Sharks are not in the Snake River. You don't have to worry about it kind of thing, right? What it is ultimately, right, it's an appeal to authority. It's an appeal to authority. And so this is what we get from Paul here, an apostle, not because he made himself one, but by the will of God. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and then he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So notice how Paul addresses the Colossians, saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So where's the emphasis? The emphasis is not on their locale. The emphasis is their identity in Christ. Um, I, we saw this in, in Ireland. Um, so Mervyn, Mervyn Scott, uh, which is funny because he's, he, he's, he's Irish, but his last name is Scott. He said, you can tell where my ancestors are from. Um, but Mervyn picked us up from the airport, uh, and that was a whole experience in and of itself, trying to get out of the airport into a car. Um, but Mervis, Mervyn picked us up from the airport, um, and also the, myself and Brian and Rich and Mickey are not, are not small men, uh, and, and they drive small cars, so that was, that was fun. But Mervyn picked us up from, from the airport, and, and Mickey had met him, None of the rest of us had. Uh, and it, but within about 10 minutes, it felt like we had known Mervyn for a really, really long time. Um, that was just the personality that he had. I, I got an extra level of getting to, to meet Mervyn because the first couple nights that we stayed there, there wasn't uh, an extra bed for Mervyn. And so instead of making Mervyn stay at a bed and breakfast by himself, they also sent me to stay at the bed and breakfast with Mervyn. Um, so the first night we, we went to sleep, and that was after traveling. I was exhausted. I fell asleep. And I woke up the next morning to Jeremy, the owner of the bed and breakfast, bringing breakfast into the room for Mervyn and myself. And uh, so he set it on the little table next to this window, just this beautiful view of the Irish countryside. And there, myself and 60-year-old Mervyn the Irishman sat eating our breakfast. And, and he told me, he said, you know, I, I think you can agree with me that we would much rather have our wives sitting across from each other. So, so the rest of the time we joked about the romantic breakfast that Mervyn and I, and I had. Um, we, we look at David and Afaf, a pastor of Nina Baptist Church and his wife. By the end of the week, we really felt like family. Um, 
our brothers and sisters at Nina Baptist Church very quickly. There was a, an instant kinship. Now, why did we have that kinship? That kinship was because we are all in Christ. That's why we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. It's why you can go to Africa. You can get on an, off the airplane. You can, you can be picked up from the airport by an African brother or an African sister, and you instantly can tell there's something about this relationship that is, that is deeper than the relationships I have with my lost coworkers or my lost um, neighbors or even my lost family. There's a kinship, kinship in Christ. Um, but, but the fact that they're, they're Irish, the fact that we're Americans, is a, is a moot point. It doesn't matter. Whatever cultural differences there are are irrelevant because of the kinship that we have in Christ. Mickey even made the point. He, he preached last Sunday at, at Nina Baptist, and he made the point to tell him. He said, I know you feel small because, again, like I said, it's a member of 20, membership of 20 in a town of, of, of 10,000. He said, I know you feel small. Um, but, but you are not because you are part of a body that is millions, maybe billions strong. So Paul's identity is as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The Colossians' identity is in Christ by the will of God. So your identity, my identity, if you are a born-again Christian, is in Christ by the will of God. So the first thing we see very simply in those first two verses, where is our identity? Our identity is in Christ. Second, we see that our faith, our hope, and our love are in Christ. Verses 3 through 5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So Paul expresses his gratitude for their faith in Christ. And I want you to notice where the focus of Paul's gratitude is. Paul does not say, thank you for your love, your faith in Christ. Thank you for the love that you have for the saints. Instead, Paul thinks God for the faith and the love of the Colossians. It's not enough to say that our faith is in Christ, like it's something that we muster up ourselves, something that we come up with, some effort of our own. Our faith in Christ comes from Christ. It's what we read in Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The 1689 London Baptist Confession says that the grace of faith enables God's elect to believe so that their souls are saved. And it's by this faith that Christians believe to be true everything revealed in the Word. So Paul thanks God for the Colossians' faith because their faith doesn't come from within themselves. Their faith is from God in God, to the glory of God alone. And I think we can learn something about, about praying, too, when we pray. How often do we pray and thank God for, uh, for the faith of brothers and sisters in Christ? Um, it, it's a, 
I think it would be a good practice. This is a, a side note, but I think it would be a good practice. I would encourage you to do to flip through Paul's epistles because in almost every one of his letters, there's a thanksgiving and prayer and read those prayers and see what his focus is. See what Paul's focus is. It's always thanksgiving and it's always um, not saying, look at you guys, look how great you're doing. It's thanking God for whatever fruit is being produced in their lives. So your faith, my faith, is a gift from God so that we can't say, look at me, look how, look how good I am, look how much faith I have, look how strong my faith is. Instead, all we can say is soli deo gloria, glory to God alone for the faith that's been gifted to us. So Paul highlights their faith, thanks God for their faith, he thanks God for their love, highlighting their love. So this love is the outpouring of their faith. Faith in Christ leads to love for our brothers and sister in Christ. It's what Jesus said, by this people will know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. So our love for our Irish brethren, their love for us is not because we're all such nice people, um, or, you know, in the Republic of Ireland, not because we all share a certain uh, antipathy towards British rule, right? Um, Our love for them and, and their love for us is in Christ Jesus. It's the outpouring of our faith that's a gift from God. You can go back to Ephesians 2, again, in verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, who does Paul thank for their love? God. Um, Now, of course, we can thank one another for their hospitality. Hey, thank you for being such a a kind host, a generous host. But really, we're, we're, we're acknowledging that that love doesn't come from within ourselves. It's from God. Apart from God, that would not be there. God is at the root of it, so all glory goes to him. So Paul identifies their faith. He identifies love as an outpouring of their faith. And most importantly, Paul identifies the root of their faith in love. He says, we've heard of your faith in Christ, and we've heard of the love you have for all the saints, and it's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So what is this hope? Where does it come from? Paul writes, you heard it in the word of truth, which is the gospel. So Paul at one point was in Ephesus. He was preaching the gospel, the good news of forgiveness Uh, of sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus through the Spirit's regenerating work. Epaphras was converted. He believed in the Lord Jesus. And then he took that gospel back to Colossae. Sinners there heard and believed the gospel. A church was established as they learned of the hope reserved for them, eternal life in Christ. And now this hope is the basis for all of their faith and love. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning as, as we looked at, um, talked about free will. But we were talking about the, the fact that in glory, um, the Christian's will is only towards good. There's no sin. Um, it's only towards good. And we were kind of trying to imagine what it looks like to live in glory. And then, and, and then we made the point um, that, that this looking forward to, to glory is, is the basis for all of our faith all of our love. So hear this, uh, if you're a, a believer here this morning, that your life is not yours. Your life is not about pursuing whatever it is you want to pursue. 
Your life is not about excelling at your job so that you can be somebody, so that you can retire and live your days out in comfort. Your life is Jesus. Uh, Your hope is not in health. It's not in financial security. Your hope is not in the next election turning out the way you want it to. Uh, Your hope is not um, in the, the economy somehow turning back from its free fall. Your hope is not in inflation slowing down sometime, please. Your hope is in Jesus. Your faith is not in yourself. Your faith is not in your good works. It's in Jesus. So if you're a Christian, and if God in his grace has has reached down and he snatched you from the clutches of sin and condemnation, or as Paul writes in verse 13, God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son, then your life is Christ in Christ crucified. It's the point that Paul is making in this first little bit. In our bedroom, we have a a sign on the wall that says, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Now, um, I don't always look at it in the morning. I don't always remember it, if I'm honest, but it's there to remind us every, every single day that we should wake up not looking forward to the stress and the struggle and the trouble that is sure to come because Jesus promised us that it will, but we don't look to those things. Instead, that we should live every day with eyes to our Savior, every day looking to the hope that's laid up for us in heaven. Eyes on the cross. Last week, Gus preached um, on on ungodly fear and anxiety, and and he made uh, the point that um, that the, the vaccine, as he said, is to remember the sovereignty of God and that ultimately our fear is the result of forgetting who's in charge. And I would, I would add to that even that fear comes as we take our eyes off of the cross, as we take our eyes off of the hope laid up for us. Because if our eyes go from the cross and it goes around to our situation, our circumstances, um, then, then we find ourselves hopeless. But our faith, our hope, and our love is in Christ alone. Last point that Paul makes is that the fruit we bear is in Christ. In verses 6 through 8, so he said of of really starting in verse 5, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the gospel came to Colossae. It was bearing fruit. It was growing in them. Paul's already mentioned it. It's bearing fruit in their faith, in their love. There's evidence of it. But it's not just in them. Paul says it's in the whole world. There's evidence that at the time of, re, uh, of the writing of Colossians, 62 AD, about 30 years after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that there were already churches scattered across Palestine, Cyprus, Syria, Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia, Italy. So the gospel had already exploded. It was already going throughout the edges of the known world. It did it then, and it continues to do so today. 
The, the church is growing in Asia. It's growing in Africa. It's growing in the Middle East. It's growing in South America. Um, and as Christianity seems to be weakening in the West, that I have to be honest with you that I think there's actually real reformation happening in the church in the West. Um, kind of the, the fat is being carved off a little bit, even as we see progressive Christianity and um, you see videos of, of uh, liberal uh, female Presbyterian ministers offering prayers to the transgender God or whatever nonsense they come up with. Even in the midst of that, I, I think there's real reformation happening. And that there's churches and there's Christians all over the place in the States, all over the West, that are tired of drinking milk and are, and are ready for meat. They're hungry for meat. So this gospel this gospel that was bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world then continues to bear fruit and increase now. I can look at our own congregation and see it. See Gus Kober, uh, who preached his first sermon last week, and five years ago, I think it was, was still dead in his sin. Um, Chris Crutchfield, who came to Christ three years ago, I think it was three years ago or so, after calling himself an atheist, for most of his life. And he was, you know, talking a little bit in Sunday school um, about, about when we think of glory and how incomprehensible that is. He said there's a little taste of it when, when you live your entire life in atheism and unbelief, and then all of a sudden God, in his grace, saves you. He said, he said it's a taste of glory. So now this, this man who is an, an atheist is now learning and growing and leading his family. Uh, I think of Colin, who uh, I, I think would admit, if he wouldn't, then this is awkward, but um, I think he would admit that, that when he and Amber uh, first came to Northridge a couple years ago, he's a Christian, but, but was just kind of getting by. I think he would ad- admit that. But now he's growing. There's a hunger for the truth. Uh, he was just appointed to be a deacon in the church um, he's remained steadfast under trial over the last two or three months. Anybody who knows Colin, I think you can attest that there's just been a radical shift in his life. Now, what's the radical shift? It's not because Colin decided, I'm going to start trying really hard, right? No, it's because the grace of God working in and through the power of the gospel. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world then as it does now. So we don't look at these examples and we say, way to go, guys. You're, you're doing great. Um, instead, we thank God and we give all the glory to him. Nothing explains um, a man who is terrified of public speaking. I, and I, I listened to a sermon and he said, you know, it's the biggest fear in America. He understated that a little bit. The fear of public speaking ranks higher than the fear of death. Most, that means that most people would literally rather die then get up and, and speak publicly in front of people. So what explains a man who is terrified of public speaking, getting up and delivering God's word? It's not his own effort. I promise you that, and I promise Gus would tell you that. It's the work of God in his people, bearing fruit and multiplying throughout the world. So Christian, um, like Paul in the Colossians, your identity is in Christ. Your faith, your hope, your love is in Christ. The fruit that you bear is in Christ. So um, really the, the, the application, the exhortation this morning um, is to do whatever you need to do to remember that every second, every minute of every day. Stop looking elsewhere for hope and look 
to Christ. Stop getting caught up in politics. Look to Christ. Stop worrying about the economy. Look to Christ. Stop trying to trust in your own effort and look to Christ. Remember the hope laid up for you in heaven. Christ alone, as we sing earlier. The wretch is now God's treasure by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone forever. For the non-believer in here, and by that I mean the person um, who has not repented of sin, who has not trusted in Christ as their Savior, uh, Christ and Christ alone for salvation, uh, then, then I urge you that whatever it is in your life that you look to as a source for hope, because we all look to something for a source of hope, um, then, then I want to be very pointed with you that if you're looking to something as a source of hope apart from Christ, that thing will only lead you to condemnation and wrath on the day of judgment. Stop looking at whatever that is and look to Christ crucified. God sent his son Jesus into the world to live a perfect life, to fully obey the law, and he went to the cross on the behalf of those who would trust in him. He bore the full weight of the wrath of God on himself. He bore the punishment that we deserve on himself. He, as, I, as I preached a couple, a uh, few weeks ago, that sermon on propitiation, that Jesus on the cross bore the full weight of, the, of an eternity in hell upon himself for all of those who would believe. Stop looking to whatever you're looking to and look to the cross. Look to the one who bore the sins of his people on himself so that whoever would believe would be forgiven of their sin, be reconciled to God, be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. Christ in Christ alone. 